Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. Now, before I even let you know about the guest today, I am super pumped to let you know that the Falls Creek Run Camp from December the 14th to the 18th this year is officially open. We've had a whole heap of you register your interest. So for those of you who are keen to lock in your spot, you can do so now. I've linked the Falls Creek Run Camp in the episode description, so you can click directly through to it. Otherwise, go to Relax Running and you'll see the tab at the top of the page. You can click on and lock in your spot. Just as a reminder, we can only take a maximum of 10 athletes up there just due to the limitation of the accommodation that we're going to be staying with. It's going to be an absolute blast running, strength, conditioning, Q&As with elite athletes, uh, a whole heap of socializing, and a whole heap of downtime just to top it off for you introverts. So if you're interested, please lock in your spots now. But for today... Super excited to welcome to the show for the very first time a friend of mine and founder of the New Paradigm Institute, Peter Williams. Now, when you look at the life of Peter Williams, you realize pretty quickly that there's a couple of different facets that he's dealing with. Essentially, he's merging the paradigms of mind, body, and habits. Now, the reason I wanted to get him on today is because running is obviously such a physical sport. There's so many demands when it comes to training and recovery and nutrition and how all of these things work together. And yet, despite how much we know these elements make a massive impact on performance, the one area which is often overlooked, and I can say was regularly overlooked in my own running performance, was the role that mindset played in performance. Now, when you get a guy like Peter, it's great because he really cements, he really opens your eyes just how powerful the element of mindset is to your own performance. And it's no surprise that when you look at the best runners in the world, they always seem to be strong in this particular area. So he combines insights from his in-depth studies of functional medicine, functional nutrition, breathing, with his high-performance coaching techniques to help individuals achieve their goals. Now, what I personally love about Pete is... This guy's got a really practical way of implementing the skills that he teaches. It's not just, hey, let's just talk some woo-woo, the mind is powerful, and hey, just get it on your side so you can dominate. He says those things, that the mind is powerful, and if you get it on your side, you can dominate. But the one thing that he follows that up with is some real practical steps on how it is that you can benefit from what it is that he's teaching. So you'll leave here today with a whole range of new techniques that you're going to be able to add to your arsenal to help you perform better as a distance runner, whatever level it is that you're competing at. If you really enjoy this one, at the end of the session, Peter and I jump across on the training hub and he walks me through a 15-minute, really powerful, really cool little breathing technique that you can apply in your own routines at whatever time of the day that you choose. So it was a fun one, 15 minutes, three or four different exercises just to get your body on side before you actually get out there and do the training. So if you enjoy this episode with Peter, I've got his links in the show notes below. Make sure you check him out, shoot him some love. But for now, let's get into it with the great man, my friend, performance coach, Mr. Peter Williams. Well, coming at us from his second Airbnb for a fortnight, I think you've just said he's, he's uh, the great man, Pete Williams. Dude, give us a little bit of a rundown. You said your morning started a lot more smoothly than mine. I, I wake to babies screaming, pooey nappies. You wake to a steam room and meditation. I'm very jealous about your start to the day. To paint the picture, what's going on? Where are you at at the moment? I, I, I'm at a very special place in my life. Uh, we, we could call it BK, before kids. <laughs> so so I'm not at the same stage as yourself. And 
Uh, yeah, at the moment I'm on the, the sunny Gold Coast, uh, this, this beautiful space soaking up the sun. And yeah, a morning for me is, is meditation, really visualizing uh, what I want to create in the world, as well as feeling like the experience of living with that. Uh, because I, I found one of the secret weapons that I'm sure many athletes and runners are aware of is like you can only achieve what you can imagine is possible, right? So that's my morning, bit of a steam, jump in the ocean, and here I am. So excited to be here with you. Uh, it's good to see you again, brother. It's good to be here. So uh, in the lead up to this particular conversation, um, for you listening, one thing that I, I said to Pete before we hit record is, a lot of these podcasts are focused uh, on the fundamentals of running training um, and things around that strength training, nutrition, um, recovery. We've touched on sleep. We've touched a little bit on breath work. But most of it has to do with that real fundamental element of when you think of running, you think of the training side, you think of the recovery side. And, and to so many athletes, it's that. But obviously, and I think for people listening, they'll understand or people who have been listening for a long time they would know about my passion, my interest in the role that mindset plays in performance. And that's why I was really keen to get you on because you and I have met relatively recently. Um, we've spoken a couple of times and I always leave our conversations just feeling inspired, feeling motivated, feeling refreshed, but also just being reminded about the importance of having some kind of clarity on where it is you're trying to take, whether it's your life or in this instance, your running performance. So Man, I guess as a, a way to introduce the conversation, do you want to just give everyone a little bit of a rundown on who you are, what you do, who you work with, um, and then we'll jump into a few points around how we can uh, use mindset to, to help take our running or, or sporting performance to a, a new level? I, I absolutely love to. So I'm a uh, teacher and a facilitator. I founded the New Paradigm Institute last year where I teach people to become integrative coaches which is an integration of a high-performance coach, a functional breathing coach, functional nutrition coach, and a life coach. So it's got a real plethora of modalities that I've trained in uh, over many, many years, over six years in the health industry for over a decade now, but the health industry and, and, and this business for six years. So I love working with high-performers, leaders, athletes, 101. And then I love teaching people to go out and create a fulfilling career as a coach themselves. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I, um, I've always had an interest in that. And I know I was a minute or two late to the podcast this morning, but I had the camera going and you said that you saw the top shelf of my bookshelf. And I don't know if you saw, but there's a couple of Tony Robbins ones there who's I've always had a soft spot on him since I was about 17. I, I like to listen to Tony, especially whenever I was going through a flat patch or whenever I was getting ready for a big race. I like just to tap into some of his lessons to find out what I could be doing better. But one thing I never really, I don't think, took full advantage of in my own running performance was actually a consistent um, approach to the mental side of performance. I was very consistent if you look through my training diaries with the actual running element, the gym element. <clears throat> in some regards, the recovery element. But the mindset, it was usually something that I started to tune into when I felt rubbish in my life. <laughs> Whenever I noticed I felt flat, I was like, all right, something needs to tune up. And for whatever reason, something, nothing really clicked when I was competing that, all right, this is important part of your performance. So um, I'm not sure. I guess I could handball the ball to you and uh, just let you paint a bit of a picture about the role that mindset plays in performance. And then maybe we could jump into a couple of elements that uh, athletes of all levels could work on 
some hopefully really practical takeaways that they could incorporate maybe on a daily basis into their own training uh, program? I, I, I would absolutely love to. Uh, that sounds like fun. And when we talk about high performance, one uh, formula or equation that I love to kind of set the conversation is, as I see it, high performance equals our unlimited potential minus interference. So I'll say that again, high performance equals our unlimited potential minus interference. So when it, when it comes to, to mindset and the psychology of high performance, we want to start to look at what creates interference. Like what are the fundamental pieces that create interference? And I love that you've had people speaking about functional breathing that can create interference. You've had uh, people perhaps speak about nutrition, uh, recovery. That's the interference of the body. But we look at what creates interference in the brain, in the mind, etc. So that, that's a pretty good formula to discuss it from, to look at how do we unlock more of that unlimited potential. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> I like that formula. The idea of interference, it does. It comes in so many forms, doesn't it? And uh, uh, the one that you mentioned at the very start of this and you briefly touched on then was the breathwork idea. That was another thing that I'd never really looked into. Um, from a high-performance perspective, I mean, you'd be better off at kick-starting this conversation. For an athlete, if an athlete came to see you and said, look, just I, I need some general advice on some areas of my performance that I can focus on, to try and either eliminate or deal with more effectively that interference that's sort of stopping me from performing at my highest possible level. Where does that conversation start? So it, it always starts with where they want to go, like what the vision is. What What's this ideal dreamlike vision that if you were living it, that would be your dream life? Because that's the place to build back from. And and I find a lot of the time with high performers, they do have a, a pretty clear vision or they need a bit of support refining it. So we go, okay, what, what is this extraordinary life? What, what would it look like? Who do you want to be in the world? Who's the identity of the person? Because the identity of the person that you want to be living as has particular habits, ways of thinking, and particular beliefs. It's like we're talking about Tony Robbins before. What I love that he would say is he would say, I built this mother effer. He'd say, I built this mother effer. Like you look at Tony on stage, how he, when they've measured him, he does far beyond what elite level athletes do. If he's jumping up and down on stage for 11 hours and we look at how does he do that? His identity, his beliefs, his thoughts and his behaviors. So starting to craft that and look at what interference is blocking or being an obstacle for us to create that way of being in the world. Yeah, there's one there's one athlete that comes to mind when I think of elite level performance at the moment. I'm not expecting you to know him because of the fact that you're not coming here from a, a middle distance running world. His name's Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He's a two-mile world record holder. He's a 21-year-old Norwegian guy, Olympic champion. In the last few years, he's, he's taken the world of distance running or middle distance running by storm. It's been unbelievable to watch. Um, for such a young athlete as well to achieve the things that he's achieved has, has just been mind-blowing. Whether it's him or you look at a guy like Usain Bolt, it doesn't really matter which athlete you're looking at. 
if they're a high performer, they bring some certain level of energy to the race, uh, the start line. And, and Jakob, I think, is the best example because when you start winning big races, especially as a young guy, there's this expectation, um, you know, potentially on yourself, but especially from those watching you, that that is the standard that you have to hold now. And a lot of athletes I watch, um, they come and they go pretty quickly. And I, I can imagine it could be that interference that comes up uh, through the form of injury, through the form of lack of motivation. I know a lot of top athletes lose motivation when they win a big race like the Olympics or world champs. They just don't um, have that desire that they once did. But a guy like Jakob, he, he seems to keep coming back with the hunger of a 16-year-old kid to just want to win. And I mean, you look at him and there's, there's a certain something in his eyes that, that just suggests that he's that he's not here to muck around. Like he loves what he's doing, but he's not here to muck around. And I really appreciate that in an athlete. And you know, whenever he was on the start line, it's going to be a bloody hard guy to beat. He's just a, he's a real warrior. You're going to have to, to steal a, to steal a quote from this guy over, uh, have I got the right hand up there? Uh, Steve Prefontaine. Um, this guy had a quote that said, someone might be able to beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it. And I think that applies to Jakob. He, he's just got this attitude. So um, there's probably things that these athletes are doing without even realising that they're doing it. Surely it's an area of, of um, varying natural abilities in so many different people. This guy seems to be a natural at it, but also seems to be um, working on it consciously. Like there's, he, he doesn't put too many words out of place in an interview. He, you, you never see him in a moment of doubt, at least publicly, on the camera. So... When you look at elite performer, I know you mentioned a couple of areas there. What, what are standout factors to you about what these athletes are doing that makes their psychology so strong and allows them to, um, you know, whether it's just to be able to display themselves as confident or to actually be able to implement that confidence on the racetrack to come out and, uh, you know, just time and time again beat world-class opposition. What are standout factors to you about these athletes? What what stands out to me with with someone like you just mentioned is that, his world looks a particular way to him. Like if, if we look at the overarching theme that we, it's like the, the Play-Doh of our experience, thought, there's, there's several people lining up at the starting line just like him. Yet he obviously he has got the physical element, but sometimes we hear 80% psychology, 20% is mechanics. And we look at, well, why is he able to outdo everyone else? Because the first element that comes to mind is what's his reasoning? What's his why? Like, what's his purpose? Like, you'll hear in the business context, your why should make you cry. And sometimes for these elite level athletes, like, it's it's something below awareness. They may not even be aware of it. Like, their world looks a particular way where they're so compelled to achieve that outcome that it comes naturally to them. Uh, and then there's others that craft that. So I see that it can either come from a deep place of pain where they felt lacked, didn't feel good enough, they experienced uh, a challenge at some point, and then something clicks in their brain where they make a decision. A decision is to cut off from any other option. And then they make a commitment a commitment is, is basically a, a commitment to a whole new way of being in the world. And all of a sudden, they're, they're driven because with the elite level athletes I've worked with, at times, it's I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I used to go, oh, is it a negative driver? They want to prove people wrong. Like they actually want to prove 
the people growing up that told them they wouldn't amount to anything wrong. So the driver can be deep, like a deep pain that they want to change in the world, or it's an immense sense of pleasure, which I've seen in other athletes where they're like, I really want to um, make my children proud. I really want to make my family proud. Like, so it's, it's interesting. It's either are they being driven towards pleasure and something that inspires them or are they moving away from like a deep sense of pain that really lit a fire inside of them? And, and at times it's both. It's, it's, it's what drives us as human beings. Yeah. Mm, that's so good, man. I like it. I've got two examples that come to mind. The first one was arguably, or one of Australia's best ever distance runners was Craig Mottram. He is the still the 5,000 meter record holder here, ran 12.55. And I remember he competed at the, I think it was the 2005 Helsinki World Championships. I know you running nerds out there are going to be able to correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say that's where he finished third in the world champs there. And at the end of the race, they asked him what drives him, what motivates him. And he said, well, I'm racing Kenyans. I'm racing Africans. He goes, I've got to know that when I stand on that start line, if these guys go, if these guys don't win, they don't eat. And so he goes, how's that for a driving factor? He goes, so when I'm out there, I better have a bloody good reason that I'm trying to beat these guys because there's, there's nothing more fundamental than trying to win just so you can stay on these teams to make the money you need, uh, you know, just for the fundamentals in your life, roof over your head, food on your table. The other one um, who, who I actually love, which is controversial to some people, I still love him despite everything he's, he's been through, is Lance Armstrong. And he's a guy that I love listening to even more so now, a few years after his experience of being caught drug cheating or finally confessing to the drug cheating <clears throat> that was going on in him and so many more athletes in the Peloton Tour de France for, for so many years. But he has this, it's like a chip on his shoulder. And I don't know how much you know about him, but you used to watch him and you still look at him now. And he's got that look in his eyes that said, oh, this is a guy who's wrong side you don't want to be on because he'll stop at nothing to make sure that he absolutely <laughs> destroys you. So I mentioned those two examples because obviously, uh, and you touched on this as well, so there's there's so many factors that's going to drive a particular athlete to do something really, really well or um, to to have to get a little bit more out of their system in order to be able to thrive. But But how do you even start to clarify something like that? Because I know some lovely athletes as well who they'll go there, there's no chip on their shoulder, they're not trying to beat anyone who's, you know, trying to get food on their table, but but yet despite how lovely they are, they still have this element of just aggression and desire to, to prove themselves. And I mean, it's probably throwing a pretty broad blanket because I imagine there's a lot of reasons that, that people are motivated to achieve. But um, like from your point of view, is there a standout feature? Because I mean, uh, what you said there, like that idea of a vision and a why is, is huge. But is there any one why from, from what you've seen that stands out above and beyond the others? Because are you saying Bolt? And a Lance Armstrong seem like very different people, but both as good at, uh, at, at their chosen event as each other. I, I think uh, it, it, it's it's great to consider because both, it's like that's the overarching theme. What's the drive or what's the why behind that? But then the next element, because I, I would say both are just as effective. I think what matters under the hood is how someone's navigating the voice in their head how they're navigating what this thing is saying inside. Like that's the defining factor because either way, as a human being, if we're pulled in a direction or pushed in a direction, I, I call it, it's like uh, the GPS will give us instructions. 
because the car's moving in a direction. So if somebody's moving in a direction, it's great. The GPS is going to give feedback. But one of my favorite metaphors that I see really is a pivotal piece, and it underpins pretty much every training I've ever done. It's the pivot point of out of 60,000 thoughts a day, which thoughts and feelings do you give airtime to? And which thoughts and feelings do you simply choose to ignore? That's the pivot point of what goes on under the hood. And we could imagine that's the radio, like that's the right, oh, today in today's news, we've got this and we've got that. And it's just, ah, very disorienting. (laughs) Depending on how loud the radio is and how much airtime an athlete gives to that, I, I find will determine how well they're able to actually follow the GPS, their inner wisdom, which is actually saying in 300 meters, turn left to succeed. If the radio is too loud, they can't hear the GPS. And that's this yeah. inner voice, that voice in the head. Yeah, that's a cool metaphor, man. One, one thing that I found really helpful years ago, actually, I, I went through a phase where for whatever reason I was down in the dump, so I won't bore everyone with the details, but I mean, it was a, it, it felt like the world's biggest problem and it turned out it had a really simple solution, but I sat with it for about a year and I was like, oh, I'm struggling. I'm not going to be good at, it wasn't related to running, but it definitely affected my running. It was, it was actually 2008, about 15 years ago. And I just remember I was just down in the dumps and um, every element of, of my life felt as though it was sort of up the wall when I'd gone to a doctor and they said, oh, what you need is an antidepressant. I'm like, well, I, I just don't feel like that's true for me right now. I don't think it's a, a pill thing. I think it's something else because uh, I don't know. I just had, speaking of that inner wisdom, I, I just had that vibe that it wasn't a, a, a in this particular thing, a pharmaceutical thing that needed addressing. I had no test to prove it. It was purely just a hunch. And then I, I heard really good recommendations about this particular psychologist. He'd work with elite performers. He'd work with just the day-to-day person who has gone through a rough patch. And I went in and sat down with him. And I go, mate, here's my life. I just started going out with Jesse. Things should have been good. <laughs> you know, on paper, it looked good. He goes, uh, he goes all right, let's talk. And we started talking. And uh, by the end of the session, he goes, mate, he goes, there's nothing wrong with you. You've just got yourself caught in like a, a negative loop. I'm like, okay, so what do I do? He goes, well, have you heard of, of cognitive behavior therapy? And I said, oh, tell me about it. So he went on to explain this idea of we have 60,000 thoughts a day or um, we have 60,000 thoughts a day. And so many of them that we tune into are actually not effective. He said, but the more you tune into a particular station, the easier it is to tune into that particular station. So what you've done, you've just become like a lifetime fan or a 12-month fan of just the shittest radio station of all time. And as a result now, when you turn your car on, it's just there, it's playing. You don't even do any conscious thought. I go, well, that sounds terrible. He goes, it is, but you can challenge it. And, and then he went on to explain CBT, where you've got to learn to pinpoint the negative thought. You've got to learn to recognize uh, what the actual error that you're making with that particular line of thought is, and then challenging it. And it sounds, when you say it like that, so basic, but often I find in my life, we, we, we skip over the most basic things in the search of something complex and never really find anything that helps as a result. So um, over the course of just being consistent with that process, every day, wherever, wherever I was, when I noticed myself getting caught on like a negative thought, whether it was um, about my life or about running performance, I would write it down and I'd go, oh, hang on a second. Like that's one perspective, but what about this? And for me, that was probably the biggest skill that I'd ever learned. And I use it to this day. Uh, and it is mind blowing how successful that is in, in my life. Whenever I feel down in the dumps, assuming, you know, 
nothing in life, like there's, there's not a great loss or, or something like that. And you just got to sit with grief or deal with that. If it's just the small things that I'm getting caught up on, that has been the, the best tool that I've ever, I've ever used. Have, have you had much experience with that? Do you recommend things like that? That's what I pretty much do with every single client. And <laughs> like it's fundamental, right? Like see, what I love, it's a principle. It's like a, it's like the gravity, uh, like gravity works for everyone. Like if I don't believe in gravity, this doesn't just start floating in the air. And if we look at the principles that underpin high performance and success, it really is the way we navigate listening to things in here. Uh, one big distinction I've seen with elite level athletes is high levels of criticism going on in here. The voice inside their head is like, I say, I say to them, it's like, is it like you're with Mike Tyson in your head and he's literally just going to town on you? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> now, now, I think a real shift is moving from self-criticism to self-critique. Critique is how can I get better? How can I improve? Versus I suck, I'm a failure, I'm not going anywhere. Because that what happens to what you just spoke to? Thoughts release chemistry in the body. Like as that gentleman said to you, we make ourselves sick. So it looks like, you know, me beating myself up is helping my performance. No, it's just flooding your body, body with stress hormone. It's making you literally dumber because when there's a lot of stress hormone, our IQ goes down. And it's not conducive to performance. Uh, one of my favorite terms that ties into what you said is our emotional refractory period. So what that means is how long you stay in an emotion for. Like as an athlete, I know, uh, for example, one I was working with recently, when we were first working together, he'd lose a game and he'd be down in the dumps for four days. But he got to the point where if he lost a game, Within an hour, he's back into training. You look at someone like Conor McGregor. Like some people love him. I think most people love him. I love him. But but you, you may see when he's coaching fighters, they lose the fight as they're walking out of the cage and they've lost. It's like back into training. Let's go back in. There's no sitting around feeling sorry for themselves. So I you with the books behind you, a positive mental attitude, yeah, or optimism is fundamental, like actually visualizing, uh, focusing on what you can do well, focusing on solutions, and then balancing that with a bit of healthy self-critique, which you could call pessimism. It's not bad. It's not like you have to be happy all the time, but positive mental attitude with effective reflection and reviewing of yourself. Yeah. 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 Well said, man. Yeah. There's another guy I had on here. He was the former... Australian 1500 meter record holder Ryan Gregson and he was telling me that he gives himself an hour to get over a bad race result he's like I'm not just going to sit here and dwell on it that's an interesting point it's interesting how many top performers can do that because you're right I remember even when I was playing community level football there were certain athletes in the club or certain players in the team you'd lose against the side and <laughs> three weeks later you're still hearing about it and uh it's interesting. Like I didn't know about that chemistry. I definitely am dumber when I'm angry. Like there's no doubt about that, but I didn't know there was actual 
evidence to support that that's true. I, I knew it on a fundamental level because I hear myself in arguments with my wife and I look back at it and I go, I can't believe I tried to use that as an example of, you know, why I'm writing this example. Whenever I'm calm, I look back and I go, okay, yeah, look, well, it's it's 2-0, you're winning. And that's, you know, we've been up for a minute and a half that day. The, the score's a lot higher than that in her favour. But, um, yeah, that's really interesting. But but I guess the, the challenge to that is just knowing how to navigate that difficult emotion because I notice whenever I'm trying to make a change, like I spoke uh, about how beneficial CBT was in my life and yet despite how beneficial that is, the, the process of getting started with that is the hardest thing. You feel like you're pushing a boulder uphill and it's just not going to make much of an effort. So for the athlete who's keen to go, look, all right, you're right. I, I need to get over it quicker. I want to get over it quicker. But my emotions are saying, no, you're going to sit here for six weeks, dickhead. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with that? Yeah, bang on. So there's a balance. One of the hidden elements, I believe, in, in high-level sports performance, it's known as bottom-up regulation. Because what CBT is, or fix your thinking, it's top-down regulation. So that's where using our logical brain, the prefrontal cortex, we try to shift the way we see it to then calm down the emotional center of the brain, which is either doing anger or fear. And for some people, if there's stress hormone flooding through the body, the, the uh, basically uh, mammalian brain is going to say, get stuffed. <laughs> You're like, come on, it's okay. It's like, no, there's danger everywhere. So bottom up uh, refers to uh, our physiology. How do we actually shift the body? And one of the beauties of runners is, Get out, go for a run. Uh, but breath work is one of my favorites that I have seen change people's lives so many times. Uh, an example is superventilation or Wim Hof. If I see somebody's really stuck uh, and that the amygdala, which is the emotional center, it's, it's caught in either fight or flight um, or another state is freeze. When someone's in freeze, they'll feel shame, guilt, hopeless, trapped. Sometimes you've got to shift that state out with some super ventilation, Wim Hof. Would have heard of him fully in, letting go. And you can find that on YouTube everywhere. He's amazing. Another breathe, motherfucker. <laughs> I don't know if you got that. I just said breathe, motherfucker. And it created an awkward pause. I was just trying to show you my Wim Hof knowledge. Oh, hey, hey, no, 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 I didn't mean breathe, motherfucker. Breathe, motherfucker, 100%. 100%. Um, another, another. I was thinking, crap, I'm trying to riff with him and he hasn't got my riff. I thought we were on the Wim Hof bandwagon together. <laughs> I love that. I've just seen it uh, snap so many people out of their state. Like their whole world will look like it's falling apart and it's not going to work and just get them breathing and they come out and their world looks completely different because one of the one of the elements when it comes to mindset and we think mindset's all thinking it's also the vagus nerve like the vagus nerve which runs from our brain stem down to our heart down to our digestive organs if that's not active our heart rate will be 20 beats faster and our survival brain We'll be looking for threat or danger. But when vagus nerves on, we feel safe. And, and that's what allows us to perform well. Yeah. Um, one final practice that I've shared many times over the years, it's called VU. And it's by uh, Peter Levine. He's 
uh, big and somatic experiencing where I'll have a client go, all right, breathing fully in. And I'll have them do that eight times. All of a sudden, they're in a different world. Like, oh, everything's actually okay. So we combine top down with the beauty of bottom up. Breathe, motherfucker. So what is that? What, yeah, <laughs> what is that semantic? So, because I've, I've heard that hum. I've heard, like, there's a chick I do yoga with on, on YouTube, Yoga with Cassandra. And every time she finishes a session, she's like, all right, let's finish with the chant of um. And I always just get into it and hear my wife laugh downstairs because it, it is ridiculous. She's trying to feed a four-year-old and I'm humming upstairs. <laughs> but there's something about it that when I do it, like, okay, there's I don't know what this is doing, but it feels nice. And what you just did then, it seems like a similar thing. Like, what is this? Did you call it semantic breathing? Well, well so Peter Levine, he, he's uh, largely known for somatic experiencing. And, and it's a type of breath. And what happens with boom or boom? Number one, we're increasing the length of the exhalation. And whenever we breathe out and exhale, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, the response of safety and relaxation. Our heart rate actually slows down when we breathe out. So all it is, because you don't normally sit there and just go, and do a long breath out, you, you do a normal breath out. So we extend the exhalation, which starts to lift up the rest and relaxation response, but also the, the vibration stimulates the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve sits just here and the fibers are stimulated through the vibration of the vocal cords in the air moving through. Man, it's so interesting to hear the actual description behind it because I reckon, and to be honest, like some in the self-help industry like don't really help themselves because they get a bit weird about it. But when you hear an explanation about how to stimulate or how to relax the vagus nerve, like you've just given, people love a little bit of science to support whatever like woo-woo, so-called woo-woo claims that they're making. But, but that makes sense. And I mean, I only need to look at the impact that certain things have on my life, like my actual chemistry. If, I, if You know that feeling that sometimes you're driving in the car, a song comes on and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, bro, like this is heaven. Like I'm just in the, I'm just in the zone now. Or like you, you have a nice bit of food or, or you go for a run to use your example. It, it's amazing how many things impact the actual um, physiology or the actual chemistry of the body. So why wouldn't something like this work? But but how would someone use that on a practical level? Because I reckon if they're sitting in a meeting and you're starting to get st stressed, that the last thing that you're going to want to do in front of your teammates is start humming. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you've got to obviously time, place and space. Um, but how do you recommend someone would, would use something like that to help them calm down? Is that like a, a morning routine thing? Is that like a sitting on the toilet thing? Where do you Where do you implement that into your day? Or how do you personally implement something like that into your day? Yeah, so great, great point. In the morning, I'll meditate for an hour. Uh, and I do that to optimize prefrontal cortex. That's the logical brain. They've shown decently in science that when we meditate, it actually increases the uh, matter and the activation of, of the brain that allows for empathy and regulation. So I'll always meditate every morning. I say meditation is like brushing your teeth. Like you wouldn't leave your home with smelly breath. You'd be like, people are like, oh. So meditation is like brushing your brain. Uh, with the breath, 
I will create a 10 to 20 minute practice either at lunchtime or perhaps in the morning or afternoon. But every day, essentially, I get to uh, a block of a 10 to 20 minute breath practice. And what I've learned is I combine many of them to get the benefits. So I will combine, you've had Patrick McKellen on, uh, I will combine a bit of oxygen advantage of reducing my breathing. And that actually speaks to in a meeting, what can they do? Pausing on the out breath. It seems really trivial. Like if they're going, if somebody's moving into a panic response, one of the best things they can do if they're pause one, two, pause one, two, three. So that's subtle. People won't necessarily notice because it's not like you're going just pausing with the breath. Uh, another example of breath that you can use very subtly is box breathing. It's what the Navy SEALs use. Well, you see, I've had like um, CEOs and stuff I've taught this to. They're just casually in their meeting and they're like breathing in, two, three. They pause the breath, two, three, breathing out, two, three, pause, two, three. And you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know. So my practice can have breathe light. It can have a bit of Wim Hof. And it can also have one of my favorites, which is coherence breathing. This was uh, designed by the Heart Math Institute. And they've shown in studies over six to nine weeks, a decrease in anxiety by 46%, decrease in depression by 51%. Because it comes back to the vagus nerve, uh, it improves vagal tone. So what we want to do a, a, as, a, as a high performer is think of vagal tone as like the responsiveness of a muscle to stress or, or uh, resistance. The more tone the vagus nerve has, the more resilience we have to stress, whether that's stressful thinking, stressful circumstance, or stress on the body. Mm. Yeah, well said, man. I like this idea as well for a runner because when you're dealing with a middle distance runner, you're dealing with energy expenditure. Like the best runners are a lot of the time. I liked what you said before, 80%. What was it? 80% something, 20% mechanics? 80% psychology, 20% mechanics, oh. yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I, I, I like the idea of thinking about a runner. You're going out there and often the fastest runner are the ones that are using um, the least amount of energy to, to or can maintain what am I trying to say here? Let me get my thoughts straight. When you're looking at a runner, you look at an Aliyev Kipchoge, and naturally the results suggest that he's able to maintain the fastest pace for the longest period of time. That's just how it works. That's how you run a marathon world record. But when you actually look at that energy expenditure, you're not just looking at the athlete on the track. You're looking at what they're actually bringing into it. And I noticed in that period of life where I was stressed and where I went to see this psychologist, I was often exhausted, not because I'd been exercising a lot, not because I'd been doing anything overly physical, but it just felt like so much of my energy was actually just wasted in my head. Like I was just constantly fighting myself. So for an athlete just to apply this in their day-to-day -day life, it seems as though it's a huge advantage because being able to rock up at the start line with a full tank of energy and not being exhausted before the race even goes, I mean, that's a huge advantage. There must be so much 
energy that's wasted with those athletes who are just self-critical and really uh, pessimistic, really negative on themselves that they probably don't realise is having a negative effect on their overall performance rather than doing anything positive that they may think it's doing. Because I think we're gluttons for punishment sometimes. A lot of people, myself included, like to think, um, even though I know this isn't true, like to think that if I'm just harder on myself, I'll get better results out of myself. But with the example I just gave, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. It seems like the the worst possible effect <laughs> on your actual performance. It, it's it's uh, I, I just find that as human beings, we're funny creatures. And sometimes we do funny <laughs> shit that we don't realize we're doing. It's like, imagine you imagine as a runner, you go out and you tie a cement block around your right foot. And then you just wear no shoe on your left foot and you, you put like spikes under your left foot and you just step onto that and you're like, all right, time to run. Like you just, you wouldn't do that. That's absurd. Like run with the cement block and spikes under the other foot. Uh, but innocently, we, we have habits of thinking that once we see it, like there's a stove over there. I'm not going to go over and go, oh, I wonder what happens if I put my hand on because I know it's not going to turn out well. Uh, and, and it's the same with this stuff, right? Like just people hearing this, it starts to make the invisible visible because we're like fish in water. We can't see the water and the water is our innocent ways of thinking uh, that we've learned to believe will help us get better performance. No, it's kind of like just slapping yourself in the face whilst you're trying to uh, improve your, your performance and your skill level. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite teachers where his son came in and he was like, I suck at baseball. I suck. And he was like, okay, well, maybe we can improve your performance because the son would always be in a bad mood and he'd be angry and he'd be complaining, etc." He said, let's make a deal. How about every day I throw 100 pitches to you for 30 days and if at the end of the 30 days you still suck, um, then, then you can continue that way. But let's make an agreement that for the next 30 days, no complaining, no blaming, no getting angry, none of that. And, and it's like, think about the, the engine of the car. We've got so much revs back. <laughs> you experience that. Me too. You get so much revs back without all of the Mike Tysoning in the head. Yeah. No, well said. Are there any other, because that one's obvious when you state it. When you say that out loud, you go, oh, of course. But a lot of the time we'll go through our days and not notice we're actually doing it, so we're unaware of it. Are there anything else that people are doing on a regular basis similar to that, like in the same vein that until we say it out loud, we wouldn't realise? That's a hard one to spring on you, but I, I wonder if there's many others. Because, I mean, the idea of getting revs back is glorious. Huge one. So what? Oh, I've watched this just... I've watched someone's performance change like that. Oh, I get goosebumps. It's the distinction between an authentic desire versus a toxic goal. So this, this is huge. Like, and I'll, I'll explain it. So authentic desire is something that's genuinely coming from within. It's intrinsically motivated. So it, it's not feeling like trying to make parents proud or trying to do it for someone else primarily. Authentic desires come from the heart, but a real distinction is a toxic goal is an example of I'll be happy when, or I'll be good enough when. 
or I'll be peaceful when. And imagine like a dog, like you, you attach your happiness or your worthiness or your ability to feel safe onto a tennis ball and then you throw it into the future and you're vigorously chasing your happiness. You're vigorously chasing your worth. And I've seen like athletes, like one of them that comes to mind, it looked like his life was dependent on the game. Like literally his world would collapse if he didn't win the game. As soon as he saw, I'll be fine. Like I'll just, there's a million other things I can do in my life. His performance skyrocketed. So what can get in the way is like intense attachment of my life will end if I don't get this. Like, like it's, it, you've probably heard of the inverted you hypothesis around arousal. Like if there's too little, people are apathetic. They're like, oh, it doesn't matter. If there's too much like this, that impedes performance. So I think if somebody's like this in their head in terms of I need it to be okay, that's invisible. I see that a lot. To see that doesn't help performance. You'll be okay either way. Dude, I love that analogy. Like the idea of throwing happiness, like that that image that you create, painting a picture on here and throwing it into the future. What a great way to put it. It's true. And yet so many of us live our lives like that. I, I catch myself all the time, whether it's regards to stand-up comedy or running performance or marriage or what, like literally insert every single part of my life. And if I'm not careful, like the idea of just being, um, I guess, like a slave to an illusion of, of what whatever that goal is on that ball, holds for you it's uh yeah it's very untrue i guess that's the the beauty of a bloke like eckhart toll and the power of now like just this idea that with a reshaping of the way you see the world whatever it is you think you're pursuing whether it's like money or fitness or health or whatever yeah sure like it might actually make some fundamental changes in how you feel in the long term but there's no reason to starve yourself of that now no really really well said brother dude i'm not gonna um we could talk all day i know we could um but for the sake of everything you've got to get done in your day, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, wrap that one up there. I think we, we offered a whole heap of food for thought. I, I do a little, um, I've got quite a few members on what we call the training hub. So the training hub is, it's, a, it's like our cheapest entry into a membership where it's got training programs, uh, video resources. Um, I mean, there's bonus podcast episodes. I was going to see if you've got time, uh, I wanted to throw the idea at you just for 15 minutes. If you wanted to come on the, the bite-sized bonus podcast, they call it, and maybe walk through a little session with me, just as a little bit of an overview and uh, idea of what a session might look like. And then for anyone else who's actually interested in reaching out to you to do some work, are you working? Um, I mean, the beauty of the internet is that wherever you are in the world, you're probably open to clients and being able to work with them. You're not just doing face-to-face stuff. Like we're not living like it's 1987. I, yeah, I, I literally have only worked online for like four years now, uh, three, 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 four years. And yeah, it means I get to work with clients in America, clients in India, clients in Philippines, all over Australia, all over the world, Europe, mm-hmm. South America. So no, I love that idea. That, that sounds like fun. Is that all right? Awesome, man. Well, if you're interested in coming to find out all my issues and how I'm going to fix them, jump onto the training hub. But brother, wait, great to have you on here. We've been, uh, um, and because uh, unfortunately, I have to admit, it's because of my admin skills. I've just discovered Google Calendar. It's been a game changer. <laughs> You've told me about uh, Motion. Um, I went on there the other day and had a look as well. I mean, I'm the admin king now. So it's great to finally lock in this time. Always a pleasure to talk to you, brother. I personally got a lot out of that conversation. So I, uh, 
I can imagine there's plenty of listeners out there who are, who are doing the same. But bro, let's wrap it up there. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com 